This time on Poll Hub, for the first time in more than a quarter century, Congress may be set to pass new restrictions on guns. Even more remarkable is that as of this record date, 10 Republican senators are on board. But why now? CNN's and The Atlantic's Ron Brownstein is here to explain what's changed by digging deep into our poll data from last week on guns and gun violence in America. Then, we've been watching the January 6th hearings and have been wondering if it's going to move the needle at all on polls showing a significant minority of Americans who say they believe some or all of Donald Trump's big lie about a supposedly stolen election. Ron is staying with us for that one, and then he caps it off with what he says Jackson Brown, Chinatown, and Jerry Brown all have in common. We're headed to the Hotel California for that. Enough hints? Stick around. Even by our standards, this is a really good show. And hi, everybody. Welcome to Poll Hub. I'm J.D. Dapper. I'm Barbara Carvalho. And I'm Lee Marengoff. Uh, last week, we put out a poll with our partners at NPR and the PBS NewsHour on uh, kind of gun rights versus gun violence. And on Sunday, uh, a bipartisan collection of senators uh, reached an agreement. Now, this isn't a law yet, and it may never become a law, but an agreement on new restrictions uh, on, on gun ownership and who can have guns and, and how they can get them. Uh, and it is being held, and it's pretty historic. It's been 25, 26 years since anything passed out of the Congress on guns. Uh, and uh, we thought we wanted to dig back into this data. We mentioned it last week, we want to dig deeper in this data. And who better than Ron Brownstein, who is the senior editor at, uh, at The Atlantic and then senior political analyst at CNN and the author of a book that we may talk about later. Uh, but who better to have on than that? Because Ron, you look into our data in ways that we don't always think to look into it. And I know that with the gun data, you have been poking around in there too. What is your take on why this is happening now, after all of these years with no, no action at all from Congress? Well, great question. And, and, and so happy to be here with some of my uh, favorite people for many years and the, and the, long, uh, the long journey to understand American public opinion. Um, well, look, I, I do think that we have seen a pretty clear pattern in public opinion uh, for the last several years. Um, uh, I don't think that anyone would say that Americans believe that stricter gun control or more restrictions on access to guns is the sole answer to the plague of mass shootings that we deal with in, in modern American life. But it's pretty clear, uh, Jay, they see it as part of the answer. Um, and polling consistently has found uh, a majority of Americans supporting uh, many of the key elements that gun control advocates believe are part of the solution. And this is ideas like banning assault weapons, banning high capacity magazines, much less imposing a national red flag law and national universal background checks. I mean, these are ideas with substantial support in the public. And one thing I wanted to look at in your poll, which you did not report initially, was prompted uh, by some results I have seen uh, earlier on guns from uh, the Pew Research Center in 2021, where uh, they looked at uh, Democrats, Republicans and independents, as everybody does. Uh, and they looked at gun owners and non-gun owners, as, as most people do. But they then kind of uh, crossed the two and looked at gun and non-gun owners inside the parties. And what they found in 2021 was that on many of the key measures, really the only group that was in opposition 
were Republicans who also own guns. And that in fact, uh, that Republican, even Republicans who were not gun owners were supportive of many key steps. So, you know, last week I, I asked the team, which, which was, you know, responsive and, and helpful and insightful as always, could you look at your data that way, that your new poll from NPR and the NewsHour? Um, and in fact, the distinction held up that, you know, if, if we're talking about the, uh, uh, the question of the assault ban, a plurality of Republican gun owners, as well as big majorities of Democrats who do and don't own guns, said they would vote for candidates who support, support the assault ban. Big numbers of Republican non-gun owners supporting a national red flag law, also supporting um, uh, national universal background checks. And what is striking in your results is that even half or more of Republican gun owners support those ideas. So with that as the backdrop, I mean, what the Senate did is important, uh, that they did something, they've broken the nearly 30 year logjam, but it is a measure to me also, the fact that they could not even do a national red flag law, they could not do universal background checks on a national basis. It is a reminder, I think, and, and a demonstration that gun owners have a veto inside the Republican Party. Republican gun owners have a veto over the party's policy. And because of the Senate and the filibuster, those that extends to basically a veto over what the country as a whole can do. That essentially one group saying no outweighs everybody else saying yes. Ron, are the, are the from a strategic standpoint, we'll get back to the data in a sec, but are the Democrats well advised to take what they can get uh, and break the logjam, or are they giving cover for the Republicans who can now say, "Yeah, we we took reasonable steps in the in the face of all this tragedy"? I mean, it, it, strategically, does one or the other make more sense to you intuitively? Um, it's a tough call. I, I think substantively, if you are a legislator, you have to take what you can get if you believe that it's going to make things even marginally better. And I, I and I, you know, I do think, uh, you know, all of the major groups that work on gun safety believe that this compromise will make things marginally better, but it is a very small set of steps and it does do exactly what you say, which is allow Republicans to, to say, well, we, we, we took reasonable steps, therefore we don't need to do more. I think, Lee, in a practical sense, in terms of future legislation, it's not that significant because it's pretty obvious there will never be significant restrictions on gun ownership through the Senate uh, unless you end the filibuster. I mean, I think that is, is pretty obvious by now. Um, but politically, I think it's a mixed bag for Democrats. It does allow them to say, we got something done at a time when they have conspicuously failed on many of their highest profile priorities because of mansion and cinema. Um, but it also does exactly what you say. It allows Republicans to say, really, they've done more than they have done. And on the flip side, Democrats can then say, we, we got started, but imagine what we could do if we had lots more Democrats. So I guess there's a there's an argument for both sides in this. Yes, yes, I agree. And, and look, I think and I think overriding any of the political arguments is the reality. I mean, you're you're spending your life in the Senate and the House. I mean, they're long days. You know, it's a lot of stress. And if you have the opportunity to do something, which doesn't come around that often these days, yeah, you take it. <laughs> I think you take it, you know, regardless of what you think are the political uh, 
ramifications if you believe it it's valuable and and look i mean i think there are a lot of serious voices who think that this can make a difference and uh you know and and if it does if it prevents one mass shooting it is worth it why now i mean as you point out these numbers really haven't changed over time um what what and we've certainly had a number of you know mass shootings that have been uh horrific uh so what do you think is different right now you know, it's it's hard for me to say. Why? I mean, partially, I think what's different is they lowered their sights, right? I mean, I think if you were trying to do universal background checks, which was the response to Sandy Hook, that would not have succeeded. There would not have been 10, 10 votes. Um, I think it's a combination of that and the confluence of two of these horrific mass shootings so close together uh, that that probably broke uh, the logjam. You know, I'm not sure, like, it's interesting. I was trying to think, Lee, as you were asking your question about the kind of the immediate electoral implications. Uh, Ron Johnson, who is, you know, the one Republican incumbent who has the toughest race, is probably going to vote against this. It's not going to provide cover to him. Um, and I, I suspect that, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, which is an open Republican seat, will say that he would have voted for it. I think he will he will use it to, to give himself some cover. I don't know about Republican challengers. I don't really know if Herschel Walker and uh, presumably Adam Laxalt in Nevada and I, I bet Blake Masters in, in, in Arizona will not uh, uh, before this, I don't know about New Hampshire, um, but I, I do think that a lot of it, it was just that the Democrats were willing to accept quite a bit less than they have sought in the past, and the pressure of the combined events was sufficient to, to move a few Republicans to, to, to feel like they had to do this. Hey, before we let you go, we want to ask you about something else in, in, that we're talking about on the show here, and that is the January 6th hearings. Um, big audience uh, for the primetime opening act, uh, and then there's been one hearing since. We're recording this on Tuesday. The ratings were very high. Um, in a very recent poll from Reuters, Ipsos, that just came out, two in five have heard, read, or seen at least some of the hearings, which is you know only 40%. Mm. Um, but in that poll, half of Americans think Trump is responsible for the January 6th riot and that the people in the Capitol are criminals. That doesn't mean that the other half don't. There's probably a, there is a large, significant portion of don't know or unsure. But what does that tell you about whether these hearings are going to change the, I don't want to say narrative because I think that's too easy a word. Uh, what do you think the chances are that this keeps us from sliding further into I don't know, autocracy, maybe that's too tough yeah. a word. Yeah, well, look, I think that, uh, I think people are too fatalistic or quick to assume that this will have no impact. Um, yeah, as I wrote today on CNN.com, there are obviously big headwinds in the way, in, 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 in impeding the ability of the committee to reach uh, Republican voters in particular. Uh, one is that there is a conservative media infrastructure that is committed not only to downplaying, but actively rebutting and discrediting the allegations. I mean, we saw that on Fox. Uh, you know, Fox was almost like real-time uh, uh, rebuttal from the, from the conservative movement or the Republican Party during the primetime hearings. Uh, the other factor, which I think is even bigger, is that to this day, 
so few Republican elected officials will validate concern about Trump's behavior uh, and, and what happened on January 6th. I mean, to the extent there are Republicans speaking out about the hearings, they are dismissing it like as a sham or Marco Rubio who tweets every day about why this is garbage, as he said to Sean Hannity. Um, if there were Republican elected officials who were sending cues to their voters, it would have a tremendous, I think, it would, it would have a magnifying effect of the information the committee is putting out there. And by the way, those two things are the difference between now and Watergate. From, from the time of when Nixon's second inaugural to his resignation in from 73 to August 74, his approval rating in Gallup among Republicans dropped from 90% to 50%. So the, 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 and part of the reason for that, a big part of the reason for that was that other Republicans stood up and said, this is wrong. Now, since that's not happening, that is obvious, and that is obviously a headwind on the committee, but I do think that, uh, you know, there is, a portion of the Republican Party, in particular, of the Republican coalition, that is not operating under the dome of conservative media. And I think it's too soon to assume that none of them are going to be affected by the very powerful revelations that the committee uh, is putting out. And, and, and as a final point, I would say this, you know, it may not be that there are a lot of people who can be moved by new information the way they were the way they were in the Watergate era, that there are fewer voters who are going to actually be open to hearing information that that challenges their partisan and ideological loyalties. You know, but because we are so closely divided as a country, it doesn't take that many people moving to have a big impact, right? I mean if if essentially two percent of the electorate concludes at the end of this process and any other legal processes that are to come that it is just not safe to trust Trump with the powers of the presidency again. I mean, that's the difference between him potentially being president again and not. So again, I, I think it's, I, I understand that there are big headwinds in the way of this committee changing public attitudes, particularly because of the behavior of voices in conservative media and the behavior of other Republican elected officials. Uh, but I think it's wrong to assume that they, they will have no impact. Ron, looking ahead to November, as everybody always does, um, and, and I guess I'm the outlier in that I haven't a clue what people are going to be thinking about in October or November, given the rap rapid uh, switching of, of issues. But, um, you know, with the reemergence of guns, on the uh, people's minds on the and in Congress, the debate over the future of democracy with the expected Supreme Court decisions, um, which you know are, are likely to catch notice of everybody, including the the you know Democrat so-called Democrat base. Um, what should we be thinking right now about? the midterm elections, with the exception of what seems to be a, a, you know, the traditional, obviously historical patterns of, yeah, the Democrats are gonna get slaughtered. Um, I see these things as sort of mitigating against that. And I really would be a, of the voice that I don't have a clue what's gonna happen in November. Right. What, do you, what do you think? Well, look, I, I think the, the, the critic, you, you, you put your finger as is often the case, Lee, on the critical variable, which is, I think, how much can those issues, guns, abortion, democracy, uh, other, uh, other rollbacks of rights that are happening in the red states, 
how much can those issues change the turnout mix? I mean, we know that by historic standards, Democrats are heading for a very difficult election. Um, mid, first midterm is always bad for the party that holds the White House. We haven't had many elections where inflation was this high. And you know, you, we're talking about 75% of Americans say the country is on the wrong track. In normal circumstances, that is going to be very tough for the party holding the White House. And you know, Democrats have kind of a double whammy because I believe that midterm elections are overwhelmingly a referendum on the state of the country at that moment. They are not really, the people say presidential elections are about the future. I think midterm elections are about the present. And I think swing voters not truly invested in the battle between the parties uh, are, are going to vote largely on their economic circumstance and they are going to vote they're going to take it out on Democrats, even though this is a worldwide phenomenon and Republicans have not offered an alternative vision and all of that. Uh, I also think that part of the double whammy is that ordinarily throughout history, the party holding the White House, their voters are less, you know, feel less urgency about voting in a midterm. And I think Democratic voters are especially dispirited by everything that's happened with Manchin and Cinema blocking so much of their agenda and feeling like, you know, we voted for this, we, we came out in unprecedented numbers and voted for this unified democratic control of government. And we've gotten some things from it, but really not the marquee things that we thought we were going to get climate action and voting rights and codifying abortion rights and, uh, you know, universal pre-K and all of these other things that Manchin and Cinema and the filibuster have made impossible. So th that's the double whammy. The only possibility of changing that dynamic is changing the turnout mix in, in exactly the way that you describe. And, you know, people have calculated, Mike Podhorzer actually, a person has calculated, Mike Podhorzer, who is the kind of chief political advisor of the AFL-CIO, using the data from Catalyst, which is the Democratic targeting firm, has calculated that over more than 90 million separate individual human beings have come out to vote against Trump and the GOP in at least one of the past three elections, 2020, <laughs> 2018, and 2016. It's over 90 million people. Okay, you need about 55 million people, maybe at most, to have a competitive, a very competitive midterm for Democrats. So the really, I, at this point, Biden's approval isn't going to improve much before the election. Inflation doesn't look like it's going to improve much before the election. Uh, and right track doesn't look like it's going to improve a hell of a lot before the election. So all of those would argue for pretty substantial Republican gains. Um, and the one variable is whether Democrats making the case and, and the Supreme Court making the case and the red states making the case and the January 6th revelations making the case that the reason you, Democratic voter, came out in the last three elections to prevent this kind of Trumpist ideology from taking over the country is still an active threat and you have to come out again. Um, you know, obviously there are limits to how much you can do that in a midterm when Trump himself isn't on the ballot, but I think the extent to which they can do that is probably the only extent to which they can mitigate a very tough election. Well, Ron, we certainly will have a lot to talk about uh, going forward, but we would be remiss uh, if we didn't also ask you today um, about uh, your new book, a little bit of a, of, a, yes. of a different topic, but Rock Me on the Water. Yes. Tell us about it. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Rock Me on the Water is a book that I wrote about the simultra simultaneous transformation of movies, music, television, and politics 
in Los Angeles in the early 1970s. As I like to say, it is a book about uh, Jackson Brown and Chinatown and Jerry Brown. Um, uh, and, and essentially, it's the story of uh, how cultural change, uh, how, how, the, how the, the, the critique of American life that emerged in the 1960s was integrated into and embedded into popular culture in the early 70s in kind of landmark uh, movies like The Godfather and Carnal Knowledge and Five Easy Pieces and Chinatown and Nashville and Shampoo, uh, TV shows like All in the Family and Mary Tyler Moore and MASH uh, and kind of classic albums of the era. Um, uh, how all of these took ideas that emerged in the 1960s, like greater suspicion of authority, greater autonomy for women, greater, uh, a greater assertion of rights by previously marginalized groups, and, and, and brought them into our living rooms and made them part of our culture in a way that proved uh, uh, irreversible, even, by, even when politics went in the opposite direction. And, and, and my conclusion was that the generational change reflected, uh, embodied in the 60s, ultimately change culture before it changed politics. And in many ways, I think we are in a similar position today where the diverse, tolerant, inclusive, kaleidoscopic millennials and even more so Gen Z are changing popular culture, obviously, at the same time that Trump is demonstrating like Nixon and Reagan before him, that you can mobilize a political coalition against those very changes. And, and so I tell the story uh, really of how these artists, uh, of how uh, Roman Polanski and Robert Town with Chinatown and Warren Beatty and, and uh, Hal Ashby with Shampoo and Norman Lear and Carol O'Connor and Larry Gelbart and Alan Alder and Mary Tyler Moore and, and, uh, and uh, James L. Brooks, how they all ultimately became the bridge between these ideas that emerged in the 60s and the mass American audience through popular culture. And, and I think you get a really close look at the interplay between politics and culture and how social ideas ultimately infuse culture. And plus there are a lot of really fun stories about how Jackson Brown and Glenn Fry wrote Take It Easy uh, and, uh, and how Carol O'Connor battled with Norman Lear over the direction of All in the Family uh, and uh, the last night and, and how Faye Dunaway and Roman Polanski uh, almost killed each other during the filming of Chinatown. So uh, it, it's a combination of kind of cultural analysis but also a really on the ground look at why it must have been a lot of fun to be in Los Angeles in 1974. It must have been a lot of fun to do the interviews and the research for that too, because you get to do the stuff you, I mean, oh. covering politics is a love, but I can tell from what you just went through there that you love the culture. That must have been a heck oh, of a lot of fun. Just, just one quick story, very quick story. Like, yes, I, you know, when I lived in LA the first time in the 90s, I wrote a book that was the history of the relationship between Hollywood and politics going back to the 1920s. So I sort of worked in this kind of, you know, tilled these fields before. And when I wrote that book, it was great. I mean, I, I interviewed people who were from the Hollywood 10 and the Blacklist who are still alive and, you know, go out to houses in Malibu or up in the Hollywood Hills. I mean, Charlton Heston's house, which is like this classic mid-century modern uh, up in Coldwater Canyon. But, and, and it was similar in this book. I mean, going to interview people, um, I mean, I talked to Warren Beatty and Jane Fonda and Jackson Brown and Linda Ronstadt, oh, she was by phone, uh, and, 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 and many of the executives. But I have to say, 
guys, the coolest thing in the writing of this book was going to the house of Lou Adler, who was the songwriter. He wrote It's a Wonder What a Wonderful World It Would Be with Sam Cooke and later the record executive and producer who produced the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967 and later was the producer of Tapestry, which was for a while, you know, it still is one of the biggest selling albums of all time. Anyway, he has a house up in the hills in Malibu that uh, classic California ghost doors, all the doors, glass doors completely disappear. And it's sort of indoor, outdoor, you know, like it feels like the ocean is at the end of the couch kind of thing. If you tip your feet over the couch, you'll be putting your toes in the ocean. And he, he has a couple of keepsakes that were like really right up there all time. For one thing, uh, as I talk about in the book, John Lennon, uh, had his what was called his lost weekend when he split, uh, uh, you know, he split from Yoko and he moved to LA for a year of kind of drunken debauchery. He lived for a while in Adler's other house. And one night in a totally drunken, drug induced stupor, he destroyed, I think it was a golf club, he destroyed all of Lou Adler's gold records that he had on the wall. <laughs> of the house. Um, and, and so Adler showed me, and you know, John Lennon was, a, was an artist, uh, you know, a talented artist as well. He showed me this lamp that he made for him out of a giant Smirnoff vodka bottle. Uh, and it was in lieu, L-E-W, of damage done. That's what it like read on the, on the <laughs> um, By the way, the person, the person with John Lennon that night when he destroyed Lou Adler's gold records was Jimmy Iovine. So it's... Story gets even better. Okay, but that isn't the highlight. Let me just give you the highlight before we all go. <laughs> the highlight is that in this living room where it feels like the ocean is like at the end of the couch, uh, Adler, not surprisingly, has various posters from uh, his his career. And and by the way, people in America, if, if you remember the 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 Dodger Braves NLCS last year, you would have seen Lou Adler, the coolest human being probably alive, sitting behind home plate in a white suit with a white beret and dark sunglasses in his customary seats. Uh, and he's got this white beret that he wears all the time. Anyway, but in his living room, he has a poster from the Monterey Pop Festival. It's about seven feet high that he, you know, that he produced. And the poster is signed by all four of the Beatles. Because wow. they were supposed to come to Monterey Pop and didn't to finish this album they were working on that I don't know whatever became of it. It was something called Sergeant Pepper's. Um, uh, <laughs> and, 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 they, and they were still in the studio. They didn't finish as soon as they thought. And so, or they were promoting it or whatever, but they couldn't come because of Sergeant Pepper. And he has this thing signed by all four of the Beatles, like basically apologizing to him for not being there. Ron, wow. if I didn't know better, I wouldn't think you were a transplanted New Yorker. Yes. Uh, judging from the well, uh, energy. The ocean the will do that to you, Lee. I mean, you know, like in, uh, I mean, for me, it was Alley Pond Park in Queens was the, uh, was the <laughs> you know, and now, now I, uh, you know, on a regular basis, I bike down the Pacific on the, uh, on the, um, the, the beach path, the bike path that goes down to uh, Manhattan Beach. So, yeah, it's got it's got its moments. You know, I think New Yorkers divide like Woody Allen. Half of them think L.A. is you know there there, and you know it's basically suntan lotion and silicon. But the other half of us are like, wow, why didn't I do this sooner? 
<laughs> well, you know, it will indeed uh, be a wonderful world it will be when we can do an entire interview uh, on these topics that uh, that you and, uh, obviously enjoy so much and not worrying about, you know, break-ins on the Capitol and yes. shootings and everything else that we also have to deal with. Uh, but uh, gosh, you, you are, as always, uh, insightful and entertaining. Uh, <laughs> Thank and, you. You've added this best-selling New York Times uh, book uh, to uh, your your repertoire. It's, it's kind of kind of fun. I think kind CNN should give you your own show. You know, with the cultural political mix. Let's you know, talk to somebody there. You know, I well, you know, they 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 I'm I'm all for it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure who to ask. Um, uh, uh, but you know, it is funny, but I can I say real quick, first of all, how much I appreciate all the help you guys and all the insight you guys share over the years. Uh, but I will say that, um, as a general proposition, culture gives you a better idea where the country will be in 10 years than politics. Cause I think politics tilts old and who makes the decision, both in terms of the elected officials and the electorate and pop culture tilts young. I mean, those companies, you know, like are more, tilted toward the, they have to be very attuned to the preferences of young people because that's where their audience is. And so like, you know, I often say, I mean, you know, Nixon and Reagan mobilized a coalition that won twice, four times against all of the changes that the sixties represented. But even after they won, I mean, we didn't go back to the Donna Reed show. I mean, women didn't go back to the kitchen, you know, uh, black people didn't go back to the back of the bus. I mean, gay people didn't go back in the closet. I mean you can mobilize a political coalition against change and as Trump demonstrated against, against social change. And you can win elections by promising to stop the social change. I just think the one thing you can't actually do is stop the change. Really appreciate it. Uh, always, always wonderful to spend time with you. Thanks so much. And soak up some sun, sun out there for us. Well, I, I think I'm going to soak up a little just walking around Sacramento today. But yes, uh, maybe a little more than I want. But I will, I will otherwise uh, take that to heart. Hey, and before we go, just want to let you know that after 252 episodes, we're taking a hiatus. It's only two weeks, last two weeks of June. And we'll be back in the week after Independence Day. But uh, in the meantime, there are 252 other episodes you can go back and listen to. I'm sure it would be a thrilling experience. Give it a try. We'll see you in July. That'll do it for this edition of Poll Hub. Poll Hub is a production of the Marist Poll at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Mary Griffith is our executive producer. Casey Schaff is our production supervisor. If you enjoy Poll Hub, please consider leaving a review. Positive reviews help other listeners like you find us. If you'd like to learn more about polling and survey science, check out the Marist Poll Academy, our free online learning portal. If you have questions for us, tweet them directly to at Marist Poll. Remember, you can always tell your smart speaker to play Poll Hub, and with any luck, it will cooperate. Finally, wherever you listen to Poll Hub, there is a subscribe button. Click it, and the latest episode will be ready for you in your podcasting app as soon as we release it. We'll see you next time. Rock me on the water.